Authenticity for me is making sure that for any chief executive, for any executive, your written voice, your spoken voice have to be exactly the same. So whatever you put into an email, whatever you put into mm -hmm. a blog, whether you're doing a podcast like this one, you have to sound like the same person. If you're going to go down a path, be genuine and make sure it comes from the heart. Welcome back to Lead the Team with number one best-selling author and in-demand corporate trainer, Ben Fanning. On this podcast, the world's most innovative senior leaders share their top success strategies to motivate your direct reports, cultivate your top leaders, and accelerate your career. Let's get started. Here's Ben. Hey there, Lead the Team Nation. Welcome back to another great episode. Today, I've got a treat for you with Ed Sims. Now, if you're not familiar with that, you're going to love his story. He has over 38 years of a career that started back in the day from airport check-in agent to CEO of multiple organizations. It included three continents, four countries, multiple cultures, and he was CEO of Airways New Zealand, and you will hear his amazing accent in just a second, and Canada's leading low fares airline. WestJet, which he led through the largest private equity deal in aviation history and, from another perspective, through COVID-19, which was the worst crisis in aviation history. He now serves on the board of Kiwi Rail and is also board advisor for Virgin Australia. Ed, welcome to Lead the Team, sir. So good to be with you, Ben, and we're really looking forward to this discussion. Man, I had fun doing my research here. You've had a story career. And let me just get this right out there, right out of the gate. What was it like working for Sir Richard Branson? Uh, <laughs> I often think I was about 30 when I started working for Richard and about 90 uh, two years later. <laughs> uh, that, that man's got an appetite for risk like nobody I've ever met. Um, oh. How he sleeps at night, I've got no idea. But, you know, he, he just has this extraordinary instinct. And he knows opportunities when he sees it. He goes for it lightning fast. He kind of needs people like me to sweep up after him. And he'd be the first to admit that, that he, mm -hmm. what he doesn't have is that kind of corporate uh, instinct of following process and, and being disciplined about it. But, you know, his commercial instincts are just mm. like nobody else I've ever met. So, uh, yeah, it was exhilarating. Uh, I lived on adrenaline, but, uh, man, I was exhausted afterwards. Well, what's one of your favorite lessons you might have picked up along the way working for Sir Richard? Uh, follow your gut. You know, one of, one of the first times I met Richard, he'd asked me to come and present uh, a business case to him. And I walked into his living room. He had a beautiful house in, uh, in West London. And there were about 14 advisors sitting around him. And he asked me Wait, to... 14? Uh, about 14, you know, bankers <laughs> and serious people from McKinsey's and... You know, investment bankers, these were mm. these were heavy dudes. Mm. And uh, he asked me to, to pitch a business proposition, and I slaved over the numbers, and I had this beautiful P&L. It looked it was a thing of beauty. And after about two minutes, I could see him shake his head, and I thought, this isn't going so well. So I said, is everything okay? And he said, look, I've been looking at numbers all morning. Have you got any pictures? So I said, uh, what do you mean? And he mm. said, well, do you have a marketing campaign? He said, I'm a visual learner. Show me the marketing campaign. So I, uh, I did, thankfully. <laughs> I had a marketing campaign. He loved it. And he turned to his investors and he said, uh, what do you think? And they said, look, if you want to go with it, you go with it. 
and he wrote me out a check there and then. So I walked out of Richard Branson's house with a check for several million dollars in my pocket as seed capital to found the business that I wanted to run. So go with your wow. gut. You know, if it feels right, it probably is right. So working on gut, as I would say, comes more naturally to some people than others. And, and having read several of his books, that's kind of been the way he's he's always operated, as it sounds like. Um, yeah, look, and I'm not an hmm. entrepreneur. He's he's an instinctive entrepreneur. So hmm. we worked really well together. We complemented yeah. each other because I'm a great fan of what I always call structure, process, discipline. And I like that corporate structure around me. But you need those people with that instinctive flair as well to, to take those chances. Yeah, so many great lessons there. One, the fact that you guys made a winning team and you come from different perspectives. And it's important for the entrepreneur-minded people to have people from your side that understand the operations and the organizational side. And also, that little nugget you dropped about understanding your audience. He said, I'm a visual learner. And fortunately, yeah. you were prepared with a different way to approach that pitch. For yeah, minutes. exactly. Have your backup plan. You know, you, you never know how people who you, you, you know, you're sitting the opposite side of the table. You never know how they're going to absorb information. So you've got to have at least two sides prepared as a backup. Wow. Okay. So you're working with Sir Richard and his organization and fast forwarding your career, you get to New Zealand, right? In the business of like, I'm, I'm trying to piece it together when you were working as the yeah. agent, well, I guess before that, working as the uh, at the as the airport agent was before yeah well that's how I started you know uh I was uh, I was a I was a graduate um, my parents thought this is going to be great he's going to go into academia you know yeah. I was at Oxford University you you were a um, literary major right yeah I mean it's just nuts <laughs> I mean I st I was studying Chaucer and Shakespeare you know none of whom were that relevant when you come to work in charter airlines or you come to work in you know package holidays. So I wanted to get out, you know, I thought from these kind of ivory towers and I wanted to get out in the mm -hmm. real world. So uh, I, I joined one of the big um, travel companies in the UK and they started me off as a checking agent. And my first job was, uh, you know, if, uh, if any of your listeners or viewers have been to um, Gatwick Airport mm -hmm. uh, in the south yes. of the UK, it's a pretty rundown. It's quite a tired airport. It's always been the home of low-cost airlines and, and charter airlines. And so I was working as a check-in agent on late-night check-ins, very often with people who, frankly, had had too many beers, you know, to board their flight. And it was a big okay. wake-up call. It might have been you know? me. I don't know how long ago this was. <laughs> no, long ago. <laughs> I knew we'd met before, Ben. <laughs> but, you know, I was 22, fresh out of college, and you're dealing with, uh, with people in, you know, all kinds of different uh, states and different conditions. You grow up pretty quickly. You learn a lot about psychology. I mean, you, you just you just look at what newspaper people are reading or carrying. Yeah. You know, when they're in the check-in line, you learn that the first conversation you have with them is not to say, you know, I'm so sorry the line's been so long. You want the first conversation to be going, where are you heading? That sounds fantastic. Go and have a great time. So you do what you can to change that that first conversation when you first meet your customer. Mm. Yeah. What a what a great early lesson to learn. And you're and you're really literally on the front lines. Yeah, totally. Ben. I mean, I think 
I'll often say to people, I've done every job at an airline, apart from fix a plane and fly a plane. You've got to know your limitations. I'm not an engineer. I'm not a pilot. But when I was running WestJet as chief executive, every single flight I ever took, I served as a flight attendant. Every single flight. I took an apron with me and I'd get, I'd get on the plane and I'd make a PA and I'd say, hey, you know, my name's Ed. I, I run this airline. I'm sat in seat 23D. Come over and talk to me or better still, I'm going to be coming down to talk to you and I'll be serving you tea and coffee. And I used to say to people, wow. I'm pretty thorough, but I'm pretty slow. So if you don't get your coffee, you know, you can, you can blame me. You write to the chief executive. His name's Ed. <laughs> Here I am. Wow. And, you know, it kind of set the tone for the type of airline that WestJet is. You know, we're about people. We act like shareholders, which most of the staff always were before we privatized. And uh, we, we, caring was at the heart of the organization. Mm. You had to be able to demonstrate that by saying, you know, look, it's not like I'm coming on a plane to work. This is my work. I get to talk to customers. I get to talk to my flight attendants. And I get to see. You know, if there's a shortfall in the product, if we haven't loaded enough sugar, if we haven't got enough cups on board, that actually is something I can deal with and I can uh, I can act on. And, you know, the staff loved it and the customers loved it. Wow. So what was it like the first time you put that apron on and you're like, <laughs> you know what? I'm not going to just sit in this seat back here. I'm going to serve the customers. Yeah, <laughs> right. you, you're a Incredibly self-conscious, and I, <laughs> expectations I are high. I would think <laughs> they're super high. You know, and people think the CEOs on board were going to get champagne. It's going to be pina coladas all <laughs> around. Um, this guy's got a crazy accent. He doesn't sound like he comes from Western Canada. So they start talking to you about hockey and baseball and football, and you've got to you've got to, you've got to be researching pretty quickly to be able to have that conversation. Well, well. Tell me about Lord of the Rings and Sky Couch and why those are yeah. so significant. Look, thank you. Those were two of the golden. I, I look back, uh, I've had some crucible moments where things have gone horribly wrong. I've had some golden moments where things have gone terribly right. Um, Lord of the Rings was definitely one of the ones that went incredibly right. Peter Jackson had started working um, in New Zealand in the late 90s on the original Lord of the Rings movies. And he actually wasn't flying on the airline that I was working for at the time in New Zealand. He was flying on Qantas. Okay. And I, I kind of I knew about this um, because my dad uh, was an expert in Nordic mythology and Anglo-Saxon. And, and so I'd grown up with the Lord of the Rings books. So I was always a big, big fan cool. long before the movies were made. Mm -hmm. And I'd found out that he was flying on Qantas and he was really struggling to get the films made and, and completed. So this didn't feel right to me. So I heard he was pretty grumpy with Zealand because we hadn't given him a good deal. So I reached out to Warner Brothers and Warner Brothers had a subsidiary called New Line Cinemas who were making um, the original Lord of the Rings movies. And I said to them, how about we do a deal? Um, we'll publish the movies or you publicize the movies on the outside of the plane but we want to be able to call ourselves the airline to Middle Earth, you know, the early, only airline that's going to fly you to where all this fantastic scenery is. And they went, yeah, cool idea. That's going to cost you X million of dollars, like tens of millions of dollars. Mm. And I went, well, actually, we're a pretty impoverished airline. 
we've just had some pretty challenging financial times after 9-11, like everybody did. And mm-hmm. you know, those were tough times for airlines. And I said, how about I offer you 10 times less than what you've just asked me to pay? And I thought, well, that would be the last conversation I have with those guys. And they came back and went, okay, yeah, we'll do it. So we mm. painted uh, three planes. We had a 747 with, uh, with Frodo down the side. We had uh, uh, 767 with my personal favorite with Liv Tyler down the side. We didn't have a Gandalf plane because I always thought Gandalf looked a bit lo- too much like God, and I didn't think that would be a good message this um, is- down the side of the aircraft. But, uh. you know, we had these wonderful <laughs> aircraft, and everybody suddenly wanted to have their picture taken with them. Everybody wanted to fly on those aircraft. People would ring the call center in in Auckland, New Zealand from Germany or Japan and America and saying, I want to fly on Frodo. So suddenly, the aircrafts had a name. And one of the golden moments for me, you know, one, we did the world premiere of the third film, um, The Return of the King in Wellington. And we flew a 747 really low altitude. I mean, I'm talking really low altitude um, across the country so that people could get to see the plane. But when Peter Jackson stepped out of his limo onto the red carpet at Wellington, we flew it at 1,000 feet over the center of the city. And in the minute he stepped out of his limo, the 747 came roaring up the road towards where the premiere was. It was, I, honestly, wow. it was one of the great moments of my life. Oh, my gosh. Um, it was just so much fun. And then we, we met the stars afterwards. And, uh, you know, we talked about all that we'd done. And, and they loved what had happened. And... Um, they were just a great bunch of people. And the only one that went really badly wrong was when I got to meet my heroine, Liv Tyler. And I was so overwhelmed, I actually forgot what my name was when I went to introduce myself. Right. <laughs> so if she's ever tuning into this podcast, I'm really sorry, Liv. I was such an idiot. His name is Ed. He was that <laughs> guy who put your face on that airplane. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And look, the Sky Couch, you asked, you asked about that. That was fun. I did a kind of top secret project after Lord of the Rings about 2007. Um, we built a, a warehouse. It, well, we, we took over a warehouse in the center of Auckland. We called it an aircraft hangar. We kept it really, really secret. And we were building prototypes of seats. We were building business class seats, premium economy seats, economy seats. We were trying all kinds of crazy things with, you know, with boxes and shapes and all kinds of weird designs. We'd worked with an extraordinary organization called IDEO, who were based in Palo Alto in California. Mm-hmm. They were involved the with Apple, they said, Apple Absolutely, yeah. did all of that early design work. They mm-hmm. were just brilliant. There's a guy there called Tim Brown, who's one of the most genius design people I've ever worked with in my life. And his opening statement to me was, you do realize everybody hates air travel, don't you? You know, everybody thinks aircraft are really boring places. And it was such a challenge. You know, Especially, I want to point me, out to the listeners, this was before WestJet. This is New Zealand, right? And this is and New Zealand. Yeah. I have never flown to New Zealand, but that is a very long flight. I mean, if you don't you know, like your you travel, can... you're going to get a trip. I mean, how, how like what is the average international flight to New Zealand? Like, uh, look, you know, from from, from LA, it's eleven hours. From New York, it's seventeen and a half. It's a long way. Yeah. <laughs> People get upset by the end of that. I can see that. You, you know, you've got to have some pretty good options. Yeah. And I, at the time, I had uh, two kids who I was traveling back and forth to, you know, from the UK. Uh, my daughter was nine. My son was six. And I always used to think if you sat in economy with two kids, all you want is for them to be able to sleep. 
So we came up with this concept that if you tilted the leg rest, it was really as simple as lifting the leg rest up to 90 degrees, you create a completely flat surface. Hmm. So an adult and two kids can, you know, the adult can be sitting up and the kids can be sleeping across them with their legs across them or their heads across them, whatever you want to do. Hmm. They can get their Lego out. They can play with their toys on this flat surface quite safely. It was just a fantastic environment for one adult and two kids or even two adults. Hmm. Yeah. And, you know, the funny thing is, Ben, we brought that sky couch onto the plane in 2008. And when I came back from Canada in 2022 to go back into quarantine in New Zealand, I flew back on the sky couch and it's still on there. It's 14 years later and I got a good night's sleep. And I thought, yeah, all of that work back in 2007 all became worthwhile. It was all really worth it. Yeah. And years later, it would still be working and still able to sleep on the thing. Um, and you can still sleep and you still see parents go, thank goodness we've got a sky couch. You know, they're just really relieved. So cool. So I did a little digging on that story. And what I discovered was you guys, you were taking some risk then. You were, it was more of a, stra- a, a cash-strapped operation, right? You, weren't, you didn't have unlimited resources no. to spend. And there was some story about how you were getting this, the sky couch tested. Is that yeah. right? What, yeah. What was the, sco- um, what's the story behind that? We couldn't, te- if we tested it on our own staff, they'd tell us what they thought we wanted to hear. They'd say, look, it was fabulous, and we wouldn't know whether it was fabulous. If we tested it on uh, members of the public and brought them into the hangar, we couldn't rely on people not telling the media. Now, back in you know 2007, at that time, there was a group of people who were out of work and desperate for money who were actors. So we paid actors to come in and simulate whether they were feeling happy to be flying to Los Angeles, whether they were feeling grumpy because they'd been on an 11-hour flight, whether they were a couple who had had a big matrimonial dispute and didn't want to be stuck together, couples traveling with kids. And we sim- and we put them in the hangar, and they test the seats for 11 hours. And, you know, they push back and go, I can't sit here for 11 hours. And we're going, hey, we're paying you, buddy. You know, what, 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 how's your acting work going right now? So, um, uh, so I'm imagining a warehouse. Not all very sparse, and you're like you're sitting in that seat right there. We're going to convert it into a sky couch. You're going to be there for 11 hours to simulate this and give us feedback. And we had fans going to simulate the noise of a jet engine, and we'd have crew in uniform going up and you know delivering the service to make sure that the service worked. That you could actually give somebody a tray; they weren't going to knock over on the sky couch. It was as realistic as we could possibly have made it. Want to boost your productivity and decision-making? Get vital insights from each episode delivered directly to your inbox. A great resource whether you've listened to the episode or not. Go to benfanning.com slash insight. So many lessons with the first story with Lord of the Rings and this. And one of the ones that I'm taking from it is what constraints could be cash constraints can do for you like you you laid it on the line with that negotiation for lord of the rings and you didn't even think they would even accept the offer because like you said i like you came back with a very low ball this is what we can do and uh you probably saved significant dollars on that and you were in where other airlines weren't even ready to go there and the second one it almost reminded me of uh 
the skunk works for Lockheed Martin back in the day, you know, yeah. or uh, when Steve Jobs with uh, the iPhone, when it, when he had it, he really suffered, you know, they separated their people from the rest of the operation to really create innovation. And um, anyway, that, that's what's you coming know, to me. You know, it, it's, you know, in many ways, there's no such thing as a, as an original idea. I mean, yeah, of course, Steve Jobs had, had come up with the concept of skunkworks before I did. It depends what you're using it for. And we, I think, used it in a uniquely New Zealand way. There was a New Zealand physicist in the 30s called Ernest Rutherford. And his great mantra was, mm. we didn't have any money, so we had to think. And we didn't have any money. You know, and I couldn't yes. develop a business class seat fast enough. Hmm. So I went back to Sir Richard again. He comes back into the story. And and I went to Sir Richard and I said, look, you know, Virgin Atlantic fly this wonderful dream suite, business class suite. Can I buy the license from you? Hmm. And, you know, and a similar thing happened. And he put a big price out there and he said, you're going to have to pay me to buy the intellectual property to to buy that seat. And he said, and you're probably not going to get an economic return on it. So I did some kind of envelope math, and uh, and I thought about how we could get a, a return. And and I said, yeah, I, th- I think we'll go with that because I'm going to get a payback on it. He said to me, you must be crazy. It's going to take you five years to get a payback on it. We got a payback on it within the first year. And he'd forgotten, you know, the very point that you were raising earlier, Ben, how far we fly. And, you know, when you're in New Zealand, you know, everything's an 11-hour flight. So people will pay a premium to have a really good night's sleep. Um, so, the, so the math worked for us, even if Richard didn't think it would. Wow. So, so cool. Knowing your own market. And, yeah, you probably, like, if you're a business leader, you may make that flight in economy one time. But if you've got the option to upgrade, <laughs> you can work it. The yeah. second, the second, third, and fourth, and once you upgrade once, you're probably like, okay, I need to keep doing this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got, I've got to, I've got to turn left. I can't keep turning right. <laughs> That's exactly right. All right. So, so in a lot of your writing, you talk about authenticity, and I, and I think, you know, the listeners obviously can tell that's you know a core principle of of, of your leadership style. Just listening today, one of your five key values. Tell me what that means to you, and maybe tell us a little bit of a time that that it came into use for you in, in your leadership journey. Yeah, for sure, Ben. I mean, authenticity for me is making sure that for any chief executive, for any executive, your written voice, your spoken voice have to be exactly the same. So whatever you put into an email, whatever you put into mm-hmm. a blog, you know, whether you're doing a podcast like this one, you have to sound like the same person. You can't. You start using highfalutin words or, you know, complex vocabulary or don't speak in plain English if, if that's not the authentic you. I also think for an organization these days, never more so than these days, you have to be really careful about appropriation, cultural appropriation, diversity oh. and inclusion appropriation. If you're going to go down a path, be genuine and make sure it comes from the heart. So one of the uh, aspects that I'd learned from New Zealand is, you know, we're a very integrated society with our indigenous people. So I'll, you know, I'll greet you by saying, kia ora Ben, kia ora tato everybody, kia ora, you know, kia ora is just good morning. It's like aloha in the Hawaiian, you know, similar origins. And I noticed that on your LinkedIn profile. I I didn't know what it meant, but I saw the language. 
I love using what we call te reo Māori, which is the language of our Māori people. And Mm. uh, again, in my time when we were developing concepts like Lord of the Rings, we'd worked on a a wonderful Māori principle called komata ene. Uh, It's who you are. Know know your true self. Mm. So the point of the story is when I came uh, to WestJet in 2017, I was just intrigued that the relationship that Canadians had with the First Nations uh, yeah. people of Canada was very, very different to the mm. relationships uh, that we'd enjoyed in Aotearoa, New Zealand, uh, with Māori people. And I just asked a lot of questions. Here we were in Western Canada, WestJet were based in Alberta, um, a lot of First Nation tribes uh, around us, and I didn't know how to reach out to them. So again, I was a bit cheeky, which you know, I'd learned from working with Sir Richard, and I reached out to a gentleman by the name of Chief Perry Bellegarde, who was the chief of the Assembly of First Nations across Canada, so the chief of chiefs, mm. most senior person. And to my great surprise, he told me that he was coming through Alberta, coming to Calgary, where we were based, and he agreed to come and meet me, uh, which I thought was, well, okay, that that's a good start. That's a helpful start. But when he came into the meeting, you know, I've got to say, and, you know, maybe the Chief Bellegarde again might watch this podcast and, you know, I owe him a huge vote of thanks. But I have to say, it was one of the most challenging and one of the most aggressive meetings I've ever been in because the Chief thought that I was looking for cultural appropriation. He came at it saying, look, if you want to put a drum or you want to put an eagle on the side of your aircraft, he said, forget it. I'm not up for that. He said, we have been. Mm. We've had two hundred years of really terrible history, and I'm not up for some, you know, guy who's come up from New Zealand telling me how easy life was with Maori. And I said to him, wow. "Easier, chief, but not easy." I said, "Maori in New Zealand are fifteen percent of the population, but a disproportionate amount of the prison population. Life is tough for them as it is for your people." Anyway, the long and the short of it was he got up on a whiteboard and he wrote me 200 years of history in in 15 minutes. It was one of the most extraordinary experiences of my lifetime. I had two advisors sitting either side of me, both native Canadians, both native Albertans. As he wrote this history, they were in tears. Mm. And I thought something very significant and very moving is going on here. This is very important information that he's sharing with me. And at the end of it, he reached across the table and he was really challenging me. And he said, tell me two things that you've taken from this meeting. And I said, the two things, Chief, I need to do a better job of educating my people about the history of First Nations, and I need to do a better job of employing your people in my company. And he kind of grumpily looked at me and went, I think you get it. And Mm. he walked away, and I thought, well, maybe something will come of it. Maybe it won't. What happened then was that he introduced me to all of the chiefs of First Nation tribes there in Calgary and in Alberta. I formed really, really close relationships with a number of those tribes, but particularly the Sutina tribe um, in Calgary. And we went on a journey where they would come in and bless our aircraft. They blessed our airport lounges. They blessed our hangars. And... I was then invited to go to what, what are called sweat lodges, which are very, very intense um, experiences um, with elders and with chiefs. Mm. And when I announced my resignation from WestJet and announced that I was moving back to um, Aotearoa, New Zealand, they asked if they could uh, come and give me a special ceremony. And they presented me with a feathered headdress. 
That's an extraordinary honor in First Nations culture. And I have to say, when I put the headdress on and I delivered a speech, I had a speech prepared. I didn't use a word of it. I have no idea to this day what I actually said when I put the headdress on because something extraordinary happened. The the Māori would call it mana. Um, it's a sense of pride and presence and inner strength that I gained fr- from that headdress. And it leads me back to your question about authenticity. If I hadn't been authentic in thinking what can I as a chief executive do for the indigenous people of this country? And if I hadn't thought about the work that needed to be done to educate uh, my non-indigenous people mm-hmm. on how important that culture is, because it's the one aspect that can never be stolen from an ally. You can you mm-hmm. can steal the plan for a seat. You can steal great in-flight entertainment. But if you have an indigenous culture that is innate to the part of the world that you come from, nobody else can deliver that authentically. And mm-hmm. so that word authenticity has been a critical part of my career and I think is is vital for anyone who has responsibility for the culture of an organization because you have to be true to yourself. I got a chill here in that in that story. So after this this happened, and that's huge. I mean, for a large organization to reach out to First Nation who's who's had lots of negative experiences with organizations and other other groups. What did you notice happened with, like within the airline when you promoted educating your own employees about the importance for yourself? I mean, what what were maybe some some bright spots that uh, that emerged from that? I noticed hundreds of people turning up for educational sessions. We'd have discussions about why is a blanket ceremony important? Why is a healing ceremony important? People wanted to learn. And I asked elders and chiefs of the Sutina tribe to come and speak to, you know, our leadership summits. We'd have 800 people in a room. The most important thing by far that happened, Ben, was I then had three of my indigenous staff, uh, Donna, who worked in engineering, Clifford, who worked in uh, rotables and infantry, and Rick, who was one of our corporate lawyers. And all three came up to me and said, uh, one was Ojibwe, one was Cree, one was Métis, and all three had said they had never self-identified because they felt the workplace would treat them differently and potentially with less respect if they self-identified as coming from First Nations. So the very next leadership summit, I didn't bring in external speakers. I asked the three of them to speak. Mm-hmm. And I get chills now thinking about it, how eloquently, how authentically how passionately all three of them spoke about their great-grandparents, their grandparents, Mm. um, sometimes grandparents who, you know, whose children had been taken away and and placed in in reservations and taken away from their family background. Mm. And they told these stories and genuinely you could have heard a pin drop in a a huge audience. Uh, But it was them expressing themselves. and, And recently I got a letter from one of the three from Clifford, uh, with some beadwork that he'd asked mm. uh, a family friend to make for me to to mark the work that he felt I had done for First Nations people in Canada. And, and look, I don't say this in any self-aggrandizing way. I, I moved, I felt like I'd moved in millimeters when I wanted to move in feet. But, you know, when I joined WestJet 2%, 
of our employees were Indigenous. When I left, it was 7%. It would have been great if it had been 20%, but we moved and we made improvements and we moved in the right direction. And I felt that we became a more educated and I felt we became a more progressive organization as a consequence. So it was important. Yeah, what a cool story. And you were on the front end of that because I think the last two years, Canada has really had to come to a reckoning with, I think, some of the schools where, where uh, first, I don't, I don't know the right terminology, but children were taken away from their parents yep. and sent to schools. And there was a lot of that history that had not been told. And that just happened. And and you got, and this, and this happened within WestJet years before that. So you were, it seems like on the front end of the curve there uh, for, for that happening within organizations. Oh, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, this stuff wasn't taught in schools for most of the people that I was working with. And I think that was the biggest shock for a lot of my fellow WestJetters was they'd gone uh, through school learning about European history or learning about, yeah. you know, history in, in other parts of the world, but they hadn't learned their own history and they hadn't heard those stories of what went on in those residential schools. And so I feel, you know, we, we, we started on a journey of actually rediscovering our own culture, our own personalities. And it took a Kiwi, you know, in a funny way, it took a Kiwi to talk to Canadians about how important your Indigenous culture yeah, is. Yeah, you. my sense is, is since you'd made so much progress in New Zealand, you saw it as an obvious opportunity when you showed up because you're like, hey, this worked, you know, and you... And also, I think what real, I hadn't thought about this is you said, Ben, this is inherent to our sort of our culture and our DNA as an airline and give it gave us really like a unique perspective uh, once we adopted it. And that can't easily be replicated by the competition. But and, don't do it for a week. You know, don't do, you know, we're an organization who are going to get behind Pride Week or we're going to do you know, this week or that week, you have to believe in it. You know, and again, I flew on WestJet yeah. recently and we still have Indigenous First Nations beading on our seats. We still That's have cool. Indigenous First Nation herbs in ingredients of the of the meals that we present. So that stuff's enduring, but it's not for a week. It has to be, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a lifetime of a journey. Well, yeah. And so for leaders listening, it's like, well, how how are you authentic in that? situation well to play it back you met with the leaders you took interest in their history you really sought to understand things at a very granular relationship historical level and then you could speak on it in, a, in an authentic way uh, because you had those relationships in place and it's uncomfortable because uh, the ceos you know we all like to think we know everything and <laughs> we know so little you know about so many aspects of our workforce and the and the people around us. And so you have to start by acknowledging what you don't know. I want to keep talking about this, but I have a lot more questions and I'm still not going to get to everything today. But I want to fast forward a little bit. Uh, so you make your way. So we, we kind of skipped part of the story where you went from New Zealand to Canada in the first place, yeah. which <laughs> maybe in a maybe in a snapshot, share so our listeners can understand how that journey, because a lot of people would say, well, gee, you know, you're great at running airlines down there, right? New Zealand. And uh, sure, I'll just run an airline in Canada where the weather is completely <laughs> different. We have snow. We have, you know, what what took you up there? 
Yeah, yeah. Back to um, you know our conversation about the Skycatch. Uh, WestJet, amongst a whole bunch of airlines, had taken quite a lot of interest in the work that we were doing, and they approached me in two thousand and eight. And at the time, you know, in Auckland, I think on the day I got the first approach, it was probably a day when it was about twenty five, thirty degrees. And I kind of looked at, I hadn't really thought much about Calgary as a place. And I looked at my phone and it said it was minus 25. So my first response was, why would I do that? That's a crazy thing to do. Mm -hmm. So I said no at the time. And then, you know, as you said, one of the gaps that we haven't got to was my time running air traffic control. That's a Mm. tough industry. But, you know, I felt like I'd taken that organization as far as I can. And airlines were just an itch that I, I had to scratch. I love airlines. I love the mm. dynamic of dealing directly with customers. So WestJet came back in 2016 and they said, look, we spoke to you eight years ago and you said, so, um, yeah, eight years ago, I said you, you weren't going to come then. Uh, what do you think about now? And, you know, my children were that much older mm-hmm. and uh, we were at a different life stage and I kind of studied WestJet. And, you know, as you said in your introduction, the leading low-phase airline, they were a successful operation. But there were a couple of things that I wasn't too sure they were starting to venture into uh, long-haul, wide-bodied aircraft, and I wasn't sure they were doing the right thing. And they also felt to me like they'd they'd just grown Mm. too far, too fast. Mm. And I started getting more and more interested in the business model. And I started to think, you know, if I'm going to have any influence on this, I'm going to have to go up there. So, you know, I agreed to to come up and meet the executive team. They were a great bunch of people. And I thought Calgary felt a bit like an inland version of Auckland, similar size, you know, about uh, a million, million and a half people. And so I said to my wife, you know, this is quite serious. I think we should give this a go. And I'm so glad I did. What an adventure. There are two, two monumental things there, maybe more. But one is you... I mean, it, it was a huge uh, acquisition, right? Or am I, am, I, am I using the right term? Private equity deal. Yeah. That, that you helped them navigate. And as I understand, a lot of the employees were shareholders, right? In yeah. terms of the... So when you were going into that, it wasn't just for the shareholders external to the organization. You were doing a deal on behalf of the of the employees, right? It was an extraordinary emotional time then. You know, uh, the private equity company that eventually uh, was successful in acquiring us, Onyx, mm-hmm. uh, were a Toronto-based private awesome. equity company. But they'd looked at the company for a long time, and they'd often thought, you know, we need a great business model coupled with a great leadership team. And they obviously decided in late 2018 that they felt the combination was right which is why they started the process in 2019. But I remember the day we'd spent six months in the negotiation. I was running an airline during the day and I was running the deal during the night. I only had 12 people in WestJet out of uh, all of our workforce who could know anything about it. You know, 14,500 people, I could only use 12 to work on the deal because it was so confidential. We were, you know, a Toronto Stock Exchange listed uh, public company. And so the deal took six months. And on the day, de- on the day I came to announce the deal, I announced it to there were about a thousand WestJetters uh, who'd come in to our uh, Calgary campus into our headquarters. And as I was announcing the deal, people were in tears because mm. they'd always been shareholders of the organisation, and they thought this was their company being taken away from them. But mm. inevitably, 
the way we'd structured the deal was that their shares had leapt in value as a consequence of the privatization. So I wouldn't ever say we made people wealthy, but I'm very, very glad in 2019 we made them financially secure because none of us knew what was just about to hit us around the corner in February 2020. Okay, well, let's. Um, so that financial security made a word of a difference. That, that I also want to make that tight. So that's amazing that that happened right before, uh, because you provided a lifeline probably to uh, for a lot of the employees and the, and, the, and the difficult decisions that every single airline had to make during COVID. Uh, some one of your writings here just struck me. Uh, I vividly remember a particular day. Ralph's filming a video update for our front reception, and I watched employee after employee filing out with cardboard boxes, unsure of when or if they would be returning. Here I was recording an update for our people and our guests while the gravity of decisions made unfolded right in front of me. What was that like that day? It was a shocking moment to realize that my job changed from running in the organization to become one of trying to give people choices. Back in, not long after, you know, the terrible events of 9-11 in New York, I was with an airline called Ansett Australia, and we went bust three days after 9-11, and everyone lost their jobs. Everyone lost their jobs. There was no chance of bringing people back. So I took from that day, I remember having a vivid thought, thinking, what would I take, what, what lengths would I go to to just to create five jobs or 10 jobs. So when we realized that we were going to have to ground 150 out of 180 aircraft, we had 72 days in a row where we had more cancellations than bookings, which was a shocking thing. Mm. When we realized we just couldn't support the workforce, I remember sitting with the HR team who were going to have to do the worst of the horrible jobs of telling people that we didn't have jobs for them. And I said to them, focus on every single job you save. Do not think about the jobs you lose. Think about every job we can save. Mm. Because there were people who we couldn't send home. You know, pilots can't work from home. Aircraft engineers can't work from home. These guys, we, we had to keep running an essential service. We were flying PPE around the country. We were flying essential workers into the oil fields up in North Canada. We had to fly emergency workers across the country mm. so we had to keep you know what i thought of as at the time as a skeleton staff of around four thousand people but i wanted the people who had the most difficult job of communicating to their fellow colleagues to remember that we were still saving jobs and we were in the process of building a platform on which we could rebuild and the most important thing for me ben when i watched those poor staff taking those boxes out was how can i give them a choice how can i say to them this may be an opportunity for a six-month sabbatical. This may be an opportunity for you to take early retirement. This may be an opportunity for you to work a two-day week or a one-day week, but I'm going to try and give you choices. And even if I just give you two weeks in which you can sit with your families and say, I'm going to take the opportunity to do this, I'm going to take six months off, I'm going to um, take early retirement, or I'm going to work a day a week, or I'm going to take leave without pay. You give people a choice because the worst thing with company collapses or redundancies is where all that element of control is completely taken away from you. And you know what happened? Because one of the key lessons that airlines and a whole bunch of other businesses learned during that period was they couldn't bring people back. You couldn't bring people back into call centers. You couldn't 
bring people back as flight attendants or airport workers because they hadn't they'd lost that emotional bond with their employer and they'd lost that connection so when those people were filing out they were taking their ipads with them they were taking their pcs or their phones because i wanted to keep them connected and we did weekly webinars mm. I, I you know wow. i did a weekly webinar uh, early in covid i had five and a half thousand people on that webinar partly because they had nothing else to do but partly because they believed that they wanted to stay connected to the company. What, they wanted what to know what the heck was them? going on. What were you telling well, them? I was just telling <laughs> I was telling them how bad things were. You know, I didn't sugarcoat anything. I was saying to them, this is really dreadful. People are dying. And the Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, is saying to people, don't fly. You can't go anywhere. So you don't sugarcoat. You know, I, I guess another key wow. lesson I've learned as a leader is my role is never to tell people what I think they want to hear. I just have to tell them the truth. And the truth sometimes can be really, really uncomfortable, but that doesn't matter. It's still the one platform you can take as a leader that you're never going to get caught out when you tell the truth. All right. So I just want to recap for our listeners here some awesomeness that you just dropped on us. So to put it, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the, the statistic is within 14 days, more than 90% of aircraft demand disappeared, right? I mean, imagine yeah. leaders, that's your business. All right. There's no, there's no easy way to, to deal with that. One of the things I think that, that gets missed that you, that you, I want to highlight that you said you were supporting your messengers. So the people that were helping deliver the message to people about choices, you were thinking about them in terms of how they were going to deliver it and providing support, which I think gets missed. You, you emphasize trying to give them choices. You, you'd been a part of, uh, when the airline went under in, in, in one of your roles before, and you were approaching this with, I want to give them choices and telling the truth, having, you're like, Hey, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm having the webinar. It's going to be bad news, but I'm happy to have you join us. And if he sometimes even, I think it would be worse not to have for them not to have anything, right. They, them making up stories in their mind about yeah. what's happened or what did happen. And you're just there slinging truths at them yeah look that's a great summary ben you know one of the realities in corporate life is that rumors always spread faster than the truth because rumors invariably are more interesting so you've got to be really quick with your communication and getting the truth out there um to make it as interesting and travel as fast but you know that's why we had to have regular webinars we had to make sure that people tuned into them and as you say, support the staff who are having the really tricky conversations, the one-on-ones, telling people they're not coming back to work. Those guys are, you know, very often the real heroes and heroes. Yeah, they, yeah, you an organization. Yeah, too often they get they get lost in this. So, one of the things that airlines have to deal with sometimes is when you lose an aircraft, and I think very few leaders will understand. Uh, myself included, what what the burden must feel like for the CEO of a company dealing with that. How do you as a leader get through those times and, and, and COVID too in these moments where just the unimaginable, uh, I mean, I guess it, I mean, you think through these things from a risk standpoint, but how, how do you, I mean, how do you wrap your mind around moments like that? Yeah, I'll, I'll take your listeners and viewers back to 24th of November 
2008, six o'clock in the morning. I'm driving into work at Air New Zealand in Auckland. And I take a call from my UK and European manager, Scott. And he rings me and, uh, and I go, hey, Scott, you know, great to hear from you. And there's a tone in his voice. And you get that instant chill. And the first thing he said to me was, Ed, we've lost an aircraft. So your first thought is, how do I not drive off the road? How can I actually drive when I'm taking a phone call like that? And, you know, by the time I got into the office, Ben, I realized I was the first person, the first senior person who had, who was part of what we used to call our instant command center. So I set up the instant command center instantly, got hold of my boss, who was the chief executive at the time. I was the chief, effectively the chief operating officer uh, for the international operation. And the key lesson for me was that we'd rehearse this. Every six months, we would do a tabletop, a simulation of some terrible tragedy. And we began piecing the story together of what had happened. We were on a, uh, it was a handover flight. We were recovering an aircraft from a, from a German tour operator. We quickly established how many people were aboard, and we quickly established that they were our mm-hmm. own people. There were five of our own people on board, and there was no debate at all that they died and it was a fatality so my first priority was to ensure that we could get the chief executive up to the site of the crash as quickly as possible and that he could take as many of the next of kin with him but you know the lesson i learned is back to something i said right at the start of this interview about structure process discipline you know if if you are practiced and you're rehearsed, the, the most awful tragedy can effectively be well sought through because you've practiced for it and you've imagined what the worst risk might mm-hmm. look like. And we, we knew our place. And I knew that my role would be to front the media. I knew that my role mm-hmm. would be um, to front our staff and to tell them what had gone on. It didn't make any of it easy for a second. I mean, I look back now, you can still look at a link on the Discovery Channel that talks about the loss of the aircraft uh, in 2008. And um, uh, this film footage of me fronting the media conference where I'm telling people that uh, our staff had been killed and that there were fatalities on board. And I looked like a deer in the headlights. You know, I look petrified, but I did know that that was my role. So I think number one, you rehearse and practice. And number two, you know, if that was tough for me, it was nothing like as tough as it was for the families of those affected. And you've got to put yourself in people's shoes. And you've got to say, I'm not the victim here. My job is to communicate and communicate coherently. And I've got to remain very professional, very calm, very composed in the way that I deliver these messages. But in a uniquely New Zealand way, after we'd given a terrible press conference on a Saturday morning, I got a call actually from the transport minister. And then the prime minister saying, we know that you're about to go and tell staff about the full details of what's happened. Would you like it if we came and joined you? And um, yeah, it, what a wonderful thing to live in a small country where the prime wow. minister actually says, I'm going to come and join you and help. Uh, the head of the, the country staff. came and stood beside the, you. The head of the country. And it was a Saturday morning. It was 9.15 on a Saturday morning. I had the transport minister on one shoulder and I had the prime minister on the other. And I was glad they were there because I was talking to, you know, hundreds of staff, all of whom were in tears, 
they were in pieces uh, about what had happened, about the shock. And um, but they were there to support me. And you know, sometimes it's wonderful to come from a small country where everybody rallies together at times of crisis. Wow, had you done a lot to foster those relationships as a leader? Or yeah, was that... yeah. Okay, so they knew you. You know, and, the old uh, adage: you invest in peacetime because you never know who you need in wartime. Absolutely, we'd we'd uh, invested a lot in those relationships. What a message! What a message! Hmm. So if you'll, you can pass on this question if you would like, but what do you, I mean, you're just a guy who's dealing with that, that moment, COVID. I mean, there's a lot of, uh, those are some heavy, heavy duty Mm -hmm. problems when you're, especially when you're the front in front. What does your home life look like when you, the, those moments, like when you get the phone call, you went home or, you know, 90% of your bookings disappear. You go home that night. I mean, do you just sit there and cry like I would? <laughs> or what, uh, what do you, what, 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 how did that play out? I've got uh, the most remarkable, measured, uh, thoughtful Kiwi wife who in those moments when I come home and I say, this has happened, she says, I'll see you in a week. She said, I'll see you when it's over and you contact me when you're ready to, but I'm not going to get in the way. She said, you know, I'll run the house, I'll run the family. You focus on what you need to do. And, you know, she's dealt, as I've dealt with, with a lot of personal hardships and difficulties in our private lives. And so we know that the most important thing we can do is remove all other forms of distraction from the other half who's going through that. So, you know, I owe a huge amount to her. I've learned a lot about composure and moderation. Uh, she was a former journalist. So she, uh, when we first met, she gave me quite a hard time. <laughs> uh, so I'm used to understanding where the media come from. So I'd, I'd give mm-hmm. an enormous amount of credit to her and and my three kids uh, for being as stoical as they've been during crisis. But I'd also come back then to talking about personal values. You know, I have five personal values. We talked about authenticity. Mm-hmm. Resilience has been another one. Um, I'm accountable. I'm very aspirational. But I, I like to believe I remain very humble. I'm, you say I'm just a guy. I'm actually just a kid who comes from... Swansea in South Wales, it's a you know, it's a pretty working class, pretty rough environment. And I always think if you know, remembering where you came from is instrumental in where you go to. Whatever you achieve later in life, remember where you came from and remember your background. And I think when I've gone through crises like the loss of an aircraft or like COVID, I go back to my values and say, Was I true to those? Did I did I stick to those five? Were they a good discipline for me? And, you know, thankfully, almost always the answer has been yes. And it makes me feel like, you know, I've done the best job I can without going back over it saying, you know, woulds and shoulds and coulds and all of those other terrible things that CEOs burden themselves with. Yeah, in such a complex industry like like airlines, it's cool for leaders to hear behind the scenes that you're keeping it grounded with the basics, the values, right? Authenticity resilience, accountability, aspiration, right? And and humility. 
Yeah. And then it's almost like having your personal code. You can go back and say, hey, how am I doing versus these? And Exactly right. And, and keep navigate. things simple. You know, airlines are actually, I think they're really simple businesses. You push revenue up, you take costs down, you take risk out, and you drive talent up. You do yeah. those four things time and time again. And airlines are a piece of cake, like most <laughs> businesses. But we overcomplicate them. And um, because we like creating this mystery about the jobs that we do. So yeah, just keep it simple and keep yourself humble. This has been a delightful interview and I've got more questions, but we got to wrap this up. So I'll maybe do this again <laughs> sometime. What's your parting thought for our listeners today? Uh, you stay, find your true North. Always know what you're aiming for and, and be true to yourself. And, and that's not an original thought. Shakespeare said it long before I did. But, you know, know where you're aiming for and, and be your authentic self. That's the uh, best thing you can do. Thanks, Ed. It's been a pleasure, Ben. Thank you. If you're an executive at a crossroads in your career and thinking about quitting, do this before you do anything else. Head over to benfanning.com slash quit to receive a free signed copy of my number one best-selling book, The Quit Alternative, The Blueprint for Creating the Job You Love Without Quitting. You'll learn the critical questions you must answer before you make such an impactful decision. Go to benfanning.com slash quit to get this valuable resource for just the cost of shipping. Ben Fanning is a number one best-selling author, Inc. Magazine columnist, and CEO of the Fanning Group, an international consultancy and corporate training company. To learn how they can help your organization, go to benfanning.com.